Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews is brought to you by Spirituality and Health Magazine, the Soul Body Connection. Visit SpiritualityHealth.com today. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. When do we say enough is enough? In this day in which our economic crisis seems to be swallowing huge chunks of what we have previously valued, We're ramping up our schedules and our stress levels trying to get back to how it used to be or how we perceive that it used to be. And in the process, we're forgetting all about our earlier plans to pursue happiness and peace. Wayne Muller, the founder of Bread for the Journey, a nonprofit agency that supports the organization of community philanthropy, is also the best-selling author of the book Sabbath, as well as three other books, Legacy of the Heart, How Then Shall We Live, and Learning to Pray. And today, he's going to challenge us with the question, what if we already have enough? His latest book, A Life of Being, Having, and Doing Enough, is the topic of our conversation this week and presents that very same challenge. At some point, rest, retreat, and reflection become the answer. At some point, we have to say, enough already. Is today your day? Well, today we'll be talking to Wayne about that. Welcome, Wayne, to the Authentic Living Show. We're so glad to talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. It's a pleasure. You know, one of the things I like to do with books is uh, sort of uh, take a few quotes out of them, and one of the best quotes I found in your book uh, uh, was, it has become so much more difficult to make peace with any job well done or any day well spent. You know, it, uh, it reminds me of an article that appeared in Psychology Today a few months back called, I Could Have Been a Contender. It, <laughs> it was a great article along the same lines, but taken from a different tack, of course, but you know, we're, it seems to me that we're striving so hard for the next best expectation that we never stop to receive the wonder of what we already have. What in the world has put us in this place? Mm. Well, you know, that's the wondering that drove me to first listen for and and then write about this subject. I mean, you mentioned that I had written a book uh, on, on the Sabbath, and uh, it was widely popular among um, people who dedicated their lives in one way or another to the service of others, whether it was parents or teachers or doctors or nurses or clergy or social workers. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And, um, and almost to a person, I noticed that all these good people were becoming more and more exhausted and um, and we can't really afford to have all of our good people exhausted and it broke my heart and and I was trying to listen for a well you know okay I, I wrote the book there's a commandment at least in uh, a couple of spiritual traditions um, so what is it that we ignore or don't feel permission to do in order to take that rest and it felt like we had just forgotten completely what enough felt like so that there was like a thermostat that wasn't going off that was giving us permission to stop that's enough heat for now we're good um you know to take a nap we're, we're, we're okay <laughs> really, really you know and even that word wayne smacks of uh, to so many people the word enough smacks of settling 
Right. You know, it's like, oh, no, it's, it can't be enough. It can't ever be enough. We have to keep going forward and gaining more, and somehow we're failing all the time. Right. And, you know, if more and the striving for more was actually making people happy, then I wouldn't really have an argument with it. Yeah, really? Really? <laughs> Except everyone I know is either overwhelmed or discouraged or disappointed in themselves or um, feeling terrible about not getting everything on their list done that they had planned on getting done. And so that striving for more, if in fact it brought a deep sense of satisfaction and well-being, I'd be all for it. But um, it just seems like the wrong tool for the job. Really? Yeah. And you know, I'm going to go ahead and say this. We only have uh, uh, 45 minutes with you today, so I'm just going to do this kind of punch and go thing. Uh, I want to say so much about our spiritual... um, Human potential movement really puts us in that place of striving, even though it tells us all along to let go of the outcome. We are so striving for some kind of um, uh, sacred space, some kind of uh, feeling of bliss, some kind of um, abundance, something always out there that we're supposed to be getting and haven't Mm -hmm. quite gotten yet. It's true, you know. There, uh, you know, in spite of so many teachings about um, about letting things be and um, and this moment being enough, and um, you are the light of the world, or you carry some innate natural perfection or hidden wholeness. You know, there's this corresponding sense that well, that's all good and fine, but. I'm striving for enlightenment, or I'm striving for liberation, or I'm striving for whatever, and the operative word being striving. And there's a difference between seeking and finding. Um, and there, there, there's a way in which so many of our spiritual practices, and we call ourselves spiritual seekers, that sort of presumes that as a seeker, I'm not a finder. Really, really, doesn't? <laughs> and, and so, as long as our eyes are 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 fixed in the focal plane of looking for what's missing, um, then whatever we gathered already that we've found becomes irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We take that one thing off the list, and we say, "Okay, where's I'm gonna add some more things to the list." Right. What's next? Yeah, really. You know, one of the one of the things I really need to say here too is uh in reading your book, it's just poetry. Uh and poetry is one of those ways in which we 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 write but we we make it less is more. Less, you know, we write in a way that less is more. And mm-hmm. your book is so tightly written and very well written. It is pure poetry and I really want to say that to you and I really encourage our readers to actually read the book. Don't just listen, read the book. You will miss out on a lot if you don't. Um, but one of the phrases that you use that I think is poetry is the forgotten refuge of enough. So let's mm-hmm. talk about what you mean by that idea. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. You know, I've, you know, even though I, I was ordained and you know went to seminary and uh, in the in the Christian uh, denomination, um, you know, I've done a lot of studying in Buddhist and Hindu and Jewish and lots of other world traditions, Muslim, um, 
And there's a sense of refuge in, in Buddhism where one uh, finds refuge or takes refuge. And there was also a refuge movement many years ago uh, among people who were being um, sort of disappeared from their home countries, mostly in Latin America. Um, when When we have or we feel like we have everything we need, um, that becomes a kind of sanctuary in our body, in time, in place. Um, because then we're not beholden to the either the seductive promises or the relentless demands of the world. Regardless of what it is, if we really take a honorable inventory of what we have in this moment, and we can honestly say, ah, that's enough for today. It sets us free from any prison or obligation that we owe to anybody else, and it becomes our own refuge. Beautiful. And in, in so doing, what you recommend in the book is that we look internally, and one of the one of the other phrases that you use that is beautifully said and woven into the text is the idea of the seasons of the heart. Can you talk about mm-hmm. that a bit? Yeah, I think some of our striving comes from not trusting or not listening carefully enough to the timing of the way life happens. And everything alive has a kind of rhythmicity and a kind of timing to it. And um, to strive to push daffodils up in December um, is just striving. It's just not the time for the daffodils. And if you don't don't know that, then it will feel like your striving is being unjustly denied. Um, (laughs) But if you know the timing of things, then the waiting patiently in expectation for the April of time when the daffodils do come up means there's no striving required and they still will come. And if we understand the seasons of how things come, then that takes some of the striving out of our hands as well. I mean, I can't imagine uh, that there isn't a woman in the world who, you know, during her pregnancy, so at some point, you know, around six or seven months says, okay, that's enough. I'm done. This is long enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, if, but if she were to start squatting and pushing at that moment, <laughs> yeah. all beings would suffer. Um, right. the, the child will let you know when it wants to come. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Very well said. And so just knowing that makes those six, seven, eight months and then, you know, those extra two weeks for the first child, you know, um, a little more uh, bearable. Of course, I'm speaking as a man, so, you know, it has to be, for me, metaphorical. But but knowing that it will come, that that it's not going to be a 20-year period, um, can bring a sense of relief. Yeah, and I think you've just you've got your uh, finger on the button there. I think that when we when we think that we must be patient, we tend to think that it will never come. Right. And and that's one of those old childhood uh, things that just didn't fall away as we grew up. I'm afraid that we still have this need for instant gratification. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why so many. Um, uh, I think. Uh, spiritual teachers and in my life experience having uh, a, a, f- 
few life-threatening illnesses that um, uh, why people use the day as the canvas on which to um, paint our hopes and dreams and expectations because much further out than today, we really have no clue what's or control or authority over what's going to happen, but we can know what we can get today. So it's our daily bread. It's one day at a time. Um, uh, because the farther out we project what we're waiting for, um, the more, the less authority we have over when it actually will even have space to enter our lives. Yeah, that's that's really. That's important. I think what you just said, the less authority we have, the more, I mean, we have less authority the more we're stuck in the future. Right. Less authority over today. I think that's really true. And that goes along with what you've said about manna in the book, which I thought was a mm-hmm. really great uh, metaphor and analogy that you were talking about how it doesn't keep through the night. So can you say a little mm-hmm. bit more about that? Well, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was, a you know, one of the more sort of beautiful teachings out of the Hebrew tradition that, you know, in the Christian tradition, I think Jesus was clearly referring to in what the Christians call the Lord's Prayer, and that is that, um, uh, you know, the Hebrews were fed with this substance that was, um, you know, sweet, nutritious coriander and honey, kind of like a, a Hebrew balance bar, I guess. And uh, <laughs> but the, but the, and mana actually in Hebrew means what is this, which is you know a curious <laughs> a little fun fact to know. But uh, they didn't know where this stuff was coming from. But but they could only keep it for one day, and it really emphasized that they had to trust that, you know, the mana truck was going to back up, you know, the next day and um, or that God would provide or that in some way what was necessary for the day would be sufficient and would come, which is why I think Jesus prays for daily bread instead of weekly bread, even though everybody knows it's way cheaper if you go to Sam's Club and, you know, Costco and do a week's shopping still. Um, <laughs> yep. He's saying, let's, let's take it a day at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're going to talk some more about that right after the break. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Wayne more from Wayne Muller on a life of being, having and doing enough. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. Think of the world. 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. 
When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back thanking me for my concerns and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today with Wayne Muller. You know, this show is sponsored by Spirituality and Health Magazine, the Soul Body Connection, one of America's most prestigious spiritual magazines, which publishes six times a year and offers an amazing array of information for the seeker, both in print and online. Check them out at www.spiritualityhealth.com. Uh, just before the break, uh, Wayne, we were talking about... Um, I, can, I can second that, by the way. <laughs> Frederick and Mary are wonderful people. and uh... <laughs> Absolutely. 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 One of the best magazines ever. I really love it. Um, so we were talking just before the break about, uh, Ma, as you pronounced it, Mana. I'm going to take your pronunciation. It's much prettier. And uh, how it was that it was not one of the uh, analogies that you use so well is that the mana was not meant to last through, throughout uh, a week. It was meant to last for a day only, and that there had to be a faith component or a trust component that there was going to be a steady supply. And uh, one of the things you also said in the book was that this mana and having to deal with it sort of forced uh, them to have to relinquish their strategies. And I want to talk a little bit about that, that whole idea of strategizing, because that's one of the things that really is promoted um, in the Western ethic, work ethic in particular, um, with regard to how we ought to be pursuing our careers. We should have a plan. We should have a five-year goal. We should have a ten-year goal. We should have a strategy. And if we don't, what's wrong? What are you doing wrong? That thing. Right. And that has sort of flooded over into the human potential movement some, too. So I want to talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit and get your feel for that. Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the questions... And again, it's, you know, these are really deeply spiritual questions, um, you know, that, that you're raising that may not sound or feel that way to people. Um, but deeply spiritual questions are often quite ordinary. And, um, and, and, you know, one of the questions I would put is, uh, do you, have you ever met anyone whose five-year plan went 
anywhere near after five years where they started. Um, and my sense is you would hear a lot of silence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very that's a that's a good question. Because even in a five minute plan, you know, two minutes later the phone rings and someone you know, offers you something, takes something, needs something, uh, and all of a sudden uh, we've been changed and our uh, sense of what needs to be the next right thing has been changed. And our five-year plan lasted two minutes uh, because we are going to be taken by things in the world that we can't plan. And there's an enormous difference between doing the right thing and making the right thing happen. And I think the five-year the five plan is a presumption that we have the authority to make the right thing happen if we have the right plan. But farmers don't make five-year plans, and parents don't make five-year plans because the farmer can plant and fertilize and prepare soil and get the best possible seed and may or may not have a good harvest. There's no connection at all <laughs> yeah. between doing the right thing and making the right thing happen. Yeah. And there isn't a parent in the world who believes <laughs> that doing the right thing can make the right thing happen. Uh, and so there's a certain humility about our authority in the realm of um, of how we can shape the world according to our will or how we rather dance with what we're able to plant and then what we're able to notice and listen to and make peace with, how we adjust, and then where we move next. That's really our, our work, is to stay awake, pay attention, and do the next right thing. Yeah, yeah. That sort of flies in the face of uh, we reap what we sow, doesn't it? Well, I mean, you know, clearly there's a, you know, there's a corollary that if you put good seed in the soil, then the chances of getting a good harvest are better than if you put bad seed in the soil. Um, but still, there is no guaranteed correlation. Yep. You know, there just, there just isn't, um, uh, because there are forces larger than ourselves at work in the world that will always have their way. You can you can put the best seed in the best soil and have a drought or a, or a flood or a freeze and it's gone. Mhm. Absolutely. And that is the risk of living, isn't it? It's wonderful. Well, yeah. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I mean, the Buddha said that everything's impermanent. I mean, things come and things go. And so our our plan is a kind of fearful grasping against the law of impermanence. And um, what we're trying to do is run counter to the way things work in the galaxy. And, um, and you know, I haven't seen a lot of people with a lot of luck in that. <laughs> yeah, really. Really, and and we've got so much going on every time every time every time I open my inbox there's some letter in there somebody from somebody who wants to help me create more wealth. So, um right. what what when you talk about wealth as well in your book, but you call it true wealth. So what is true wealth? Well, I guess this really, you know, in a way speaks to where we are you know, both spiritually and economically. Um, spiritually in the sense that our technologies these days tend to isolate us because of our computers and our cell phones and our, um, you know, all the ways that we can be isolated even in public spaces. Um, but 
to bread for the journey, for example, this little charity that I have, it's sort of based on the idea that everyone has capital, um, but they don't necessarily have financial capital, but they may have creativity capital or wisdom capital or experience capital or time capital. And so if everyone in a community concerned about something to help one another, to help the community, to help families, comes together and each brings whatever capital they have, and everyone has some capital, then the creation of true wealth comes from combining all of that capital into wealth that everyone then owns and gets to take away. And I really firmly believe I've seen it happen you know, a thousand times. I've been in circles with people and still to this day run circles with people who have been historical enemies, black and white in Mississippi, um, different um, factions in healthcare or law or um, and get people in a common circle to collaborate to bring their capital to the table because everyone's feeling squeezed, everyone's feeling isolated, everyone's feeling poorer and more desperate. But rather than presume they're just going to be poor, how can we bring our capital to the table and realize that we can still have enough with a lot less individual financial capital? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, at some point we have to reach the end of the rope where <laughs> where money stops and something else begins. Right. Uh, yeah, so you also talk about um, uh, a woman by the name of Elaine in your book and how she created some boundaries. Wonderful story, and I wonder if you'd uh-huh. like to relay that story here and uh, and just uh, tell us a little bit about what she did to create more happiness for herself. Well, um, you know, there's sort of a, a bit of an introduction that I won't uh, go into, but uh, there was a woman who I through various circumstances, saw at the beginning of her uh, journey with cancer and then several years later came back and met her again. And uh, she uh, looked luminous and um, magnificent and uh, beautiful and uh, and I couldn't believe how marvelous she uh, and vital she seemed. And so I, I asked her to teach me what she knew. And, of course, she felt that I was the teacher and she was the student. I explained, well, look, I don't feel anywhere near as luminous as you look right now. <laughs> so I want to know what you're doing. <laughs> I said, you know, how, how did you, you know, holding this cancer, being living with cancer, and yet moving into this stage of luminosity, even though, in fact, she was an advanced four, stage four cancer and was actually very close to death, um, she said, well, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, a couple things. One is um, I really make sure to invite only um, life-giving people into my life. Um, and, and what I mean by that is there are certain people who just take energy sometimes. And it may not be the person, it may be the mix, it may be the relationship, who knows, it may be the moment. But we know who, who, when we gather them around us, make us feel nourished and fed and loved. And she made sure that those were the people that she spent the bulk of her day with. Um, and the second was that she didn't hold on to resentments or 
regrets about anyone. And she said she did that by trying to own what was hers and let them have theirs. And, it, you know, they sound so ridiculously simple. But um, I know that very simple practices can sometimes over time, um, you know, bring quite a harvest, and they certainly had for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that story was beautiful. You know, the other thing is that um, we have trouble with creating those boundaries, I think, because we, we've we been taught, many of us have been taught that we're supposed to love everyone, and that means we're supposed to be inclusionary in our lives. And, and of course, yes, I agree with that as a, as a community effort. I certainly don't want mm-hmm. to be exclusionary. But right. we have to consider this whole idea of what, what is life-giving. Yeah, and and there are different levels of uh, of honest intimacy as well. You know, I've sat in circles with, as I said, literally thousands of people, um, all of whom, when I'm in the circle with them, there's a kind of unconditional respect for their wholeness and their beauty and their value as human beings. But I wouldn't necessarily choose them all as my most intimate companions. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to be back in just a minute with some more from Wayne Muller with regard to a life of being, having, and doing enough. Stay tuned. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. 
That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back, and this is our last segment with Wayne because he's got to go uh, a little bit early today. But So we're going to be talking in this last segment about what it is that we can do to really recognize uh, a life of being, having, and doing enough. But before we go there, I want you, uh, if you will, Wayne, to just sort of um, tell our listeners about your website and how they might connect with you if they choose to. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the website is waynemuller.com, which I've finally been able to memorize. And, uh, <laughs> that was a tough one. And, uh, uh, you know, there are several things on there that I hope would be uh, interesting uh, for people, articles and uh, and links to people who I know or love or I, I feel, you know, um, have something uh, quite valuable to to offer. Um, uh, I also um, a couple of years ago spent a lot less time on the road, so um, I I've been spending time with people on the phone and in personal retreat here in Santa Fe. There's a person, um, for example, who runs an enormous healthcare organization. I think he has sixty thousand employees, and uh, and he's at a point in his life where he feels like he's done what he can in that realm. And now he feels like he wants to make a shift to something closer to the ground and something smaller and more deeply sufficient. And so um, uh, I'll journey with um, individuals who find themselves at this place where um, having accomplished a great deal, had very long to-do lists, are really thirsting for um, some kind of honorable way of living that feels not only useful to the world, but also um, sort of gentle and deeply um, nourishing and happy, um, and just helping people across that threshold to the degree that it's um, that it's possible, and um, and and really, I I'm hoping that that the book is sort of an invitation for people to 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 cross that threshold. You know, certainly not with me, but um, but just to to begin to imagine um, that there might be another way. You know, a way of finding rather than seeking. You know, a, a way of uh, of being uh, satisfied with the magnificence of small things, the mustard seed, the, the leaven in the bread, the touch of of someone you love, a, a word of kindness, a poem, um, how each of those can in their own way be so deeply nourishing. Um, and, and we discount small things in our culture so uh, dismissively. Um, and in point of fact, uh, one of the ways we can find enough is by taking, as I said, an honorable inventory of even the smallest things that have great beauty in our lives already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Just waking up to just the colors in a room and the smells and the sensations and the sounds and the wind blowing and things like that can really bring Uh us back into the moment. One of the quotes you've got in the book is, mercy, attention, and deep listening to who we are and what we have makes us actually go be able to go inside and find the only place where happiness can be found. And I didn't say that exactly as you had it in the book. Uh-huh. But the idea of, of, of really that deep listening to who we are, um, can you say a little bit more about that? I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to right. touch on that. Right. Well, um one of the things I, I write about right at the beginning of the book is is that for many people on the planet, um, the concept of enough is not a philosophical conversation. It's a two-hour walk in each direction with a pot um, for enough water um, for to feed um, and keep uh, hydrated a child who might die that day. And so it's it's a privilege to even have this kind of conversation. And so when we put anything into context of sufficiency, um, one of the practices that I use is to tell myself the truth. Uh, I started it a couple of years ago. It's not like I was practicing lying to myself before, but that's <laughs> 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 sort of like Elaine. I took it as a, as a, as a real practice um, that regards that I would tell myself the truth, at least between me and me. I could start there about, you know, does this really bring me pleasure? Am I really happy? Is this really true? Um, do I really feel that in my body that what I'm saying reflects, you know, what's happening? Um, and if I can do that without judgment and with a lot of mercy and gentleness, um, I learn a tremendous amount about who I really am and what I really need and what I really love. And one of the ways that we can very easily discern if the next right thing is in fact the next right thing is to just put it to this litmus test. Is it something that when I go into it, I say, I can handle this? Or when we go into it, do we say, I love this? Mm-hmm. And if we have too many, I can handle this in our day, we're always going to feel insufficient because it takes a tremendous amount to handle something of energy, of attention, of of care that get wasted on something that isn't nourishing. And so telling the truth to ourselves about that is a radical beginning, I think. Absolutely, it is radical. And it's it's so hard for us to digest that idea that we resist it, that that we should just be doing what we want. Huh, who gets to do that? What about those people that are walking two miles either way to get water? How come we get to think about what we want and they don't. You know, it's that whole, you know, um, survival uh, guilt that we carry with us. Uh, it right. prevents us from going there. And then at the same time, you know, to when we work with, with um, obligation and resentment, uh, our work isn't very fruitful. And when we work with mm-hmm. love and happiness, um, we generally do a lot better. And if you think about the people you go to when you need support or love and care or advice, you generally don't go to overworked, depressed people. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. true. And I don't want to hear some therapist acting like she doesn't like doing what she's doing or he doesn't like doing what he's doing either, or a pastor or anybody else. Watch the whole session. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Are we done yet? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are people on my to-do list? 
Really? Yeah, exactly. Can I check you off yet? Exactly. Yeah. But, I, you know, I love the idea that you, that you use mercy. The word mercy there is just so, it's such a wonderful word. And, it, you know, we, we talk a lot, of, uh, people that um, teach meditation talk a lot about how we need to be able to sit with ourselves without judgment. But that without judgment implies that we are probably going to be judging. But mercy is an active uh, response to that that says, I'm not only going to be not judging, I'm going to be merciful to myself as I look inside. And that's just so beautifully said. Yeah. Yeah, I find that, you know, it really is the ground of sufficiency. Um, and it's interesting, you know, even though Jesus said, I, you know, go and learn the meaning of this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said it twice. Um, you don't hear that preached a lot because the model of the suffering servant usually takes over. Um, and so, you know, just the permission for mercy is something we offer one another as friends, as family, as people who love each other. You know, what a gift to, to offer. You know, you can be more merciful on yourself. You are enough. Um, you know, to be mirrors in that way is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, that to be able to say, I am enough, is also simultaneously, at least and how I view it, uh, to be able to say, I have enough. If I am enough, then I have enough. If, I'm, if I am enough, then I'm doing enough. Right. There's some kind of correlation there that I, I'm not sure I can put totally into words, but there is that connection. Uh, yeah. And it all falls down to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's a sense... You know, when we act from a deep sense of sufficiency, then there isn't a sense of relentless artificial emergency surrounding everything in the world around us. And, you know, the the world loves emergencies, and we love emergencies because it makes us feel important that we can, you know, fix an emergency. But most of them we make up just so we can feel important. (laughs) true. We create chaos so that we can resolve chaos that creates more chaos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the whole sense of sufficiency, you know, it means you don't have to cause so much trouble. Yeah, really. <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the other things you've said in the book that I think is so so important with regard to this artificiality is the idea of imagined indispensability. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I mean, in this, in this uh, time when we're so focused on, you know, there's so many people out there uh, saying that we are valuable because there's nobody else on the planet that's just like us. And yes, that's true. And I definitely agree with that. But at the same time, does that really mean that I'm indispensable? You know? Yeah, there's a difference between value and indispensability. Everyone has value. Everyone has capital. Everyone has, um, you know, the light of the world, everything. Everyone brings some fragrance of grace to the table. Um, and at the same time, everyone we know will die, and we will die, and things will go on. And making peace with that can also be a real deep seed of sufficiency. Absolutely. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for being on the show. Now, I want the listeners to know we're going to go on, uh, continue on after this. We'll talk some more about this, but Wayne has to go now. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Andrea, thank you so much. I deeply appreciate it. All right. I love the conversation. Me too. Me too. We had a great time. See you later. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
we'll be back in just a minute with more from Authentic Living. We'll be talking more about this whole idea of what makes us happy. for a transforming world. Seventh Wave Network. America is facing a skilled workforce shortage. SkillsUSA can help. What is SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA is life-changing. SkillsUSA is awesome. SkillsUSA is one of the biggest opportunities life can give you. SkillsUSA is amazing. SkillsUSA is motivating. SkillsUSA specifically prepares you for the workforce. SkillsUSA empowers students to connect with a network of people, starting with their classmates, to their advisors, to other people in their states. SkillsUSA allows students to connect with business and industry, to manage their education, and to really get a feel of the real world. I'm doing something now that's going to be applicable in the real world, and those skills are going to be useful today in school and in five years when I'm working and for the rest of my life. On the web at skillsusa.org. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. You live for the firsts in your child's life. But how do you cope with the firsts that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back with our uh, final segment. We, you, we all know that uh, Wayne had to go uh, to take care of some other things, and um, so he was not able to finish up this segment with us. But we're going to be talking a little bit more about what he had to say. And I want to tell you, the reason that I wanted to get Wayne Muller for this show is because this is a topic that I personally struggle with, that, that, is, that I just keep having to be whacked with, with the reality that, um, that I can't do it all, that I'm not superwoman, that I can't do everything, and I can't, I certainly can't do it alone, and 
um, that I that my strategies are are not necessarily effective because I'm striving. And so when I talk about striving, it's because I've I've striven with my striving. <laughs> I have really uh, had to look at uh, my own level of striving and and continuously over several years tell myself to cease striving and know that I'm God. So um, that's the reason why I wanted to invite him to the show. I know that many of you are also struggling with that same idea. Uh, And the idea is that somehow we just haven't quite measured up yet. We haven't done it all. We've got these short little 80, 90 to 100 years to do what we came here to do. And by golly, we've got to get it right this time or we're not going to be able to get rid of karma, we're not going to be able to, you know, um, uh, uh, offer the world what we came to offer the world. We won't live fulfilling lives. There's some negative outcome that we're looking at if we just don't keep on on the treadmill. And there's never a stopping point. There's never a place where we just say, okay, that's enough. I need to take a little refuge. I need to take a rest. And uh, one of the things that that Wayne talks about in his book is this a whole idea of rest, and he spends a little time talking about sleep. And one of the quotes out of his book is, the less we sleep, the more fragile and ineffective we become by every conceivable measure. And uh, so if you think about that, I mean, there's actually uh, been some uh, diseases that have come into our awareness over the past 10 to 20 years that have to do with not getting enough sleep. Fibromyalgia is one of those that people can actually get um, difficulties with their nerves because they're not getting enough sleep. Um, and, and there's much more that he says about that. And, again, I would encourage you to read his very poetic and profound book. But uh, the idea is that, um, is that is the same for rest. If we don't get enough mental rest, then we're not, we're not going to be as effective. We're going to be uh, bouncing around from topic to topic and, um, plan to plan and strategy to strategy without any time in, be- in between for a pause. And one of the things, uh, a beautiful word that he used as we were talking with ryth- is rhythmicity. I love that word. And basically what, what that idea is, is there's a rhythm to everything. There is a pause between every word. There is a pause between every beat of a song. There, is, uh, uh, there are pauses in nature. There's a pause between every beat of my heart. And we don't want to take those pauses because if we do, we're not going to achieve. We're not going to get to what we're trying to get to. We're not going to meet that five-year plan. We're not going to meet that 10-year plan. And, uh, you know, so then we, then we carry around all this sense of failure and we carry around all this guilt that we haven't accomplished what we were supposed to accomplish. And one of the things that we're running from in that process is that feeling of, fail, of potential failure or, or of guilt that... Um, if I, if, if there's, a, there's a way that our guilt and our sense of failure talks to us, and it says, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to make you feel really bad later. And so we, so we want to run from that feeling, and we don't want to ever have to have that feeling, and we just got to keep on, keep it on, keep it on. And um, so I, I, I really want to say here that this idea of rest cannot be emphasized enough. And by that, I don't mean you know, becoming a couch potato, and that's what we tend to think. We think in these black and white terms that if if I'm not constantly busy, well, then I'm just lazy and I'm no good and I'm just doing nothing. I'm, I'm a, a ne'er-do-well. I'm a no good. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a couch potato. So, but the middle ground is I know because I've looked inside of myself, I know when it's time to pause. 
I know when it's time to just sit still and reflect. And what so many of us do is we'll push, and he said it uh, at the end of the show as as well, that we'll push until we get sick. And then we say, okay, now I can take a rest. Well, you know, we didn't have to do it that way. (laughs) There is another option, and that is to be able to just say, I'm going to take a rest now because I've done enough today. I'm going to take a rest now because it's okay for me to take a rest. It doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It doesn't mean that I'm not good enough. It doesn't mean that I haven't measured up. It doesn't mean that I'm uh, uh, I'm not uh, uh, the person that I came here to be, whatever imagined entity we think that is. So... um, And when I laugh here, I want you to know I'm laughing at myself because I struggle, as I said, I struggle with those same things, that idea that, you know, you you just have to work on yourself constantly or you're just not going to be good enough. And uh, while that struggle has been ongoing for many years now and I've gotten much, much better with it, uh, it still rears its ugly head from time to time. And I think that uh, when it does, what I come to is I get to decide that's my. That's what how I sort of respond back to that um, sort of demon on my shoulder that says, you know, you need to be doing something now. And one of the things that I can respond back to that with is, I get to decide. I get to decide. I'm in charge. And being able to say that I get to decide is a way of saying, I can be happy right now in this moment as it is with who I'm with, doing what I'm doing. There's, if I'm supposed to be somewhere else, then I'll be there. Right now, I'm here, and I'm going to enjoy this right now. And uh, so um, we can really work on that. One of the other things that um, he talks about is being able to find happiness even in the midst of something that's sad or difficult because we carry that around within us all the time. And I've, I've said this on other shows, but... We, can, we have our peace inside of us. It is not outside of us. It is not in some goal. It is not in some activity. It is not in some duty or obligation. It is inside of us all the time. And our happiness is as well, our joy. And, and so we can go inside and find that any time. And sometimes in the most sad moments, we can find a connection to other people that's very valuable. We can find a sweetness and a vulnerability that is dear and we can and really take that in and receive that as a part of the happiness that is within the sadness. And so it, we don't have to reach this state in which we're uh, in constant bliss or constant sense of, of, of this deep meditative connection with the divine or, or some higher power. We, we can be in the moment and be full of the moment without having to strive for it. And that is the lesson of this show. I hope that we've been able to get that across. And, and Wayne, uh, Wayne's book is a very good read. I really, truly encourage you to read it. A Life of Being, Having, and Doing Enough, um, one of the best books I've read in a while. So uh, next week we're going to be very fortunate to have Thomas Moore to come back to the show again, uh, author of all the wonderful series on Caring for the Soul. This time it's going to be Caring for the Soul in the Medical World, so don't miss that special event. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself.
Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.